Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let me pray. Father, we, we ask for your help as we look at your word. We ask that you would illumine our minds, that you would turn on the lights in our heads so that we would see the truth. Father, so that we would be repentant before it, so that we would trust in it, so that we would rejoice in you, God, our Savior, and in your true word, that you would be honored as we live it out for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've had one of those, those weeks. You guys ever had one of those weeks um, that, that culminated with this morning with all the technical difficulties? But that's just like the tip of the iceberg. You know, you have one of those weeks where you're just wrecked all week. Maybe it's because Jason, my assistant pastor, is gone, and it's just hard to be without him. <laughs> I'm not sure. But I think more than anything, it's just been one of those weeks where your own sin and the sin of others in your life comes to a sort of collision point and you feel like you're just getting wrecked personally throughout a week. You guys ever had those weeks? And, um, and you feel like, hey, why should I get up in a pulpit? This is how I feel. Maybe you don't feel this way. But this goes through my head. Why should I get up in a pulpit and start preaching? Who, who, who am I to get up there and open the word of God and call upon brothers and sisters in Christ to walk with, walk with him. I, I'm a sinner. I have done things that have brought harm to other people. Other people have done things that have brought harm to me. I've been involved in relationships that have gone head on and become a mess. And, and when that happens, I feel like a complete wreck as a person. And I feel like I can't get up there and preach I can't even focus on the word of God right now because of all the junk that's going on in interpersonal relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ that should not be happening. And some of it, some of it, as I look through all of it, at times I feel like it's my fault. I look at it and go, what could I have done differently? How should I have handled this better? In what way did I speak out of turn? In what way did I act in a manner that was sinful? And I'm just overwhelmed with those thoughts. You guys ever been there? And you can't focus on much else. And I emailed one of my buddies this morning, and I said, I'm having a hard time focusing on my sermon at all. I'm having a hard time preparing my mind to preach the word of God this morning. And he emailed me back, and he said, Chad, I know things are difficult, but you need to remember you need to remember something important. You need to remind yourself something important. Yes, things are going badly in some way in your life right now. Yes, sometimes you've done things that have contributed to that. Yes, sometimes you've acted in a lack of wisdom. And yes, in some ways you've sinned. However, so he said to me, however, God is for you in Jesus. And you need to remember that. God is for you in the person of Jesus Christ. You need to remind yourself, he said to me, of the gospel. 
You were not up there preaching the word of God because somehow you were without sin or you are in and of yourself qualified, but you were called before the foundation of the world to do this and you were qualified by Jesus Christ and his blood on the cross and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his session, his rule and reign and his sending in the Spirit and it has nothing, not one thing to do with you. And I thought to myself, you are absolutely right, brother. You are absolutely right. Because we sometimes think that the Christian life, we get confused and start thinking that the Christian life is that we exchange one list of to-dos for another list of to-dos. Take away this, don't do this list of things, and exchange it with a, do this list of things the to-do list of the flesh and the to-do list of the law. And we think if we exchange this one for this one, that that's the Christian life. That the Christian alternative to immoral behavior is moral behavior. That that's somehow what we're about. If we could just turn from our immoral behavior and start walking in moral behavior, then that's the transformation that the gospel is seeking. Yes, in part, that's true which is why it's so deceiving to us. Because that is a fruit of gospel transformation. But that isn't what motivates gospel transformation. That isn't what drives gospel transformation. That isn't what affects in my heart and mind the transformation of the gospel. What affects the transformation of my heart and mind What affects that is the work of God's Spirit applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to me and giving me new birth and then working in me to will and to do his good pleasure by the power of his Spirit. Last week I said that after writing 11 chapters on the gospel After writing 11 chapters in the gospel, Paul tells us that the proper response to the gospel, the proper response to the gospel is to offer, look at verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Here's the response of 11 chapters of him laying out the mercy and grace of God to us. He says, respond with gratitude. Respond with worship. I appeal to you, therefore. Here's the therefore, summing up 11 chapters. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. That's the therefore. Look back at the mercies of God, brothers. Look back at the mercies of God. And in light of that, because of what God has done, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or as I told you last week, your logical response. That's what that word says in the Greek. This is the rational response to mercy as to completely abandon yourself for God. Give it all up. Why? Because of what he has done. Not so that you somehow can gain his approval, but because you already have it. Because you already have it. Your rational response to mercy, to grace, to worship, to, or to grace, is worship and gratitude. And that's why I preach this morning. The reason I can get in the pulpit this morning and preach to you is not because I'm sinless, but because I'm grateful 
for grace. Because I'm grateful for grace. And as a result of what Jesus has done for me, I can take this sinful body, this sinful mind, and I can offer it all to him. And that's what we're all here to do, right? Now, I've brought you into what is the beginning of the second half of last week's sermon that I told you I couldn't finish. So the rest of this is what you didn't get last week that you should have gotten. And that's this, that if we really have gratitude for grace, which expresses itself in complete self-abandoning worship, if we really have gratitude for grace, then there's a dual nature in the expression of our gratitude. There's a dual nature in the expression of our worship. What is that dual nature? Look at 12.1. He says, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies or offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable. Now look at verse 2. Do not be conformed to the, the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. In other words, present your bodies as a sacrifice and be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Dual nature. You offer all of your person, all of your members to God as a sacrifice, and you offer your mind to him. Give your mind renewed. So I want to consider the dual nature of true worship or gratitude this morning. So all we're going to do is consider the dual nature of true worship or gratitude. The true worship or gratitude that springs forth from a grateful Christian life, from people who are thankful, that responds in a manner that's reasonable, Responds in a manner that's reasonable, that's rational, that's logical, given the mercy that God has shown us. So the first point is this. There's two major points. One, offer your body as a sacrifice. This is the first point. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice. This is what Paul says here. As a sacrifice, as living, holy, and acceptable to God. And first I want to deal with this idea that he says here when he makes this comment. By the mercy of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, I want to deal with that word sacrifice. The language here that Paul is using brings the audience of, in the church of Rome back to a priestly focus that was in the Old Testament where the Old Testament priests would bring forward a sacrifice. They would, the people would bring an animal. The priest would then lay his hands on that animal, transfer the sins of the people to that animal, and then they would kill that animal. They would put blood on the atonement seat, which is where the Ten Commandments were kept. And they did this every year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which in the Jewish calendar was yesterday. Every year they would come together to do that. And they would atone for their sins. All of that, those animals being sacrificed, a picture of the fact that someday... Christ would come because Hebrews clearly tells us that men have never been forgiven their sins or saved by the shedding of the blood of bulls and goats. That's always been a picture that points forward to the coming Christ who John the Baptist said is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So Paul points us back to that priestly focus and what he says is you're no longer bringing animals to sacrifice Christ was the Lamb of God. He was the last sacrifice in that sense for atonement for your sins. But you are sacrificing your bodies, 
sacrificing your whole self to God. We give up something, is what a sacrifice is. It's giving up something and offering it up to God, and that's our bodies. The problem is that when we think of sacrifice, what we often think is, oh, I need to give this up. I'm going to sacrifice. I've got to give this up. Rather than thinking of sacrifice as an act of worship. What does Jesus say about this idea of sacrificing our whole lives to him in the parable of the hidden treasure? Because no, the treasure hidden in the field, and here's what Jesus said. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Hear what's happening? This man found the treasure of Jesus Christ. And he gave everything up for Jesus. But he did that in his joy. That wasn't a joyless sort of drudgery where he's going, oh, I've got to give all this up for God. I don't want to do this. Oh, like My hair's being pulled. This is a joyful giving of it up. That's what Paul's saying here when he talks about sacrificing your body. When he says, give your whole life to God. Total, complete, sold out obedience with every member of your body and you do it joyfully. Why? Why are you joyful? Because your sacrifice is not focused on what you're giving up. Your sacrifice is focused on who you are getting. That's why Paul calls this offering your reasonable or your logical, or your rational service, or worship. Because indifference, and apathy, and anything less than complete, joyful giving of ourselves is an irrational response to the mercies of God. Hear that? Anything less is irrational, unreasonable, not logical, But complete, all-consuming gratitude and worship is the only rational response to God's mercy, which is why Paul uses the same word for worship here in 12.1 as he does in Romans chapter 1, where the people exchanged the worship of God for animals. And further, not only does he say it's supposed to be the sacrifice which is joyful because of whom you're getting, He says that the sacrifice, he gives three adjectives about it. What does he say? The sacrifice is living, holy, and acceptable. Those are three adjectives he puts with that noun sacrifice. Offer your bodies as a sacrifice. There's your noun. Now, he gives us three adjectives to define that noun. Living, holy, and acceptable. They modify sacrifice. What does he mean by that? Well, a a lot of English versions, including the one I'm reading from, actually put the word living before sacrifice. So they say, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, and then it goes on and says, holy and acceptable to God. The problem with that translation is twofold. One, the grammar doesn't support that translation. And two, the logic of the argument doesn't support it. Here's what I mean by that. Most scholars put that word living before sacrifice as if it's a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead sacrifice. They say, see, animals were slaughtered, so they're dead sacrifices. You're supposed to keep living, so you're a living sacrifice. They try to make that argument. That is not what the text is talking about. 
It's not talking about that first for the grammatical reason. All three adjectives follow the word sacrifice. You have the noun sacrifice, and then you have three adjectives that follow them. There is absolutely no justifiable grammatical purpose for taking one of those adjectives and putting it in front of the noun. It's the first issue. You probably don't care about that, but that's just the way it is. The, se the second issue is the logic of the argument doesn't support it. Because animals are alive when they're sacrificed, aren't they? It's not like animals are a brought in dead to the priest. Here's my dead sheep. They're alive when they're sacrificed. What's the emphasis then? The emphasis is on the fact that those who have been made alive together with Christ are to offer themselves up as a sacrifice to God. That we are living because we've been made alive together with Christ. And we offer ourselves a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice that is in fact holy to him, that's well-pleasing to him. See, unbelievers can't bring that kind of sacrifice. They can't bring a sacrifice that is living, holy, and well-pleasing. They can only offer a sacrifice that is dead, unholy, and unacceptable. So here's what Paul's saying, these three adjectives. Believers, if you're in Christ, you are spiritually alive. If you're in Christ, you are set apart for God, you're holy. You're acceptable to him, so live that way. Put every part of your being into the service of living consistently with what has been declared to be true about you. You are alive. You are holy, set apart. You are acceptable to God. Now, that is the state of affairs. Live consistently with it. This really leads to dealing with the part of the verse that would have been strange to the Roman audience. See, this part of the verse, offer your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and pleasing, would not have been strange to the Roman audience. The second part, this other part would have been where he says this, offer your bodies. The sacrifice, not so, not so strange to their ears because they were people who understood the idea of sacrifice in worship. What was strange to their ears was the idea that you could Offer your body in worship. Why, why was it strange? It was strange because they didn't think about spirituality as having to do with the whole person. They thought the body should be left out of the discussion of true Christian spirituality. In fact, in, in the first century, they would either deny the body any pleasure, physical pleasure, or, and practice asceticism. Asceticism is where you basically don't eat stuff, don't taste stuff, don't touch stuff, that you decide is off limits because it gives your body pleasure. And in Colossians chapter 2, actually, Paul deals with asceticism. He actually names it specifically. He's saying, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. Some of the Christians said, if you want to be really living the spiritual life, then you have to practice asceticism. You've got to deny your body any physical pleasure. Other would say at that time that you've got to maximize your bodily pleasure. Why do you have to maximize your bodily pleasure? Because whether you deny it or maximize it doesn't matter because your body is inherently evil. And so you've got to basically bail on the idea that your body has anything to do with spirituality. Really true spirituality in their minds was to somehow be freed from this body forever. Because it was all about the soul, all about the heart. The body had no part whatever. 
But Paul's saying something shocking to them. He's telling them that true spiritual life is not carried out exclusively in the realm of some kind of spirituality that's disconnected from your physicality. We, we tend to fall into the same error. Um, we'll talk about giving our hearts to God, right? You guys have heard that? You need to give your heart to God. That's good. I'm it's wrong. That's good. Give your heart to God. How many times do you hear somebody say, you know what? You need to give your body to God. Almost sounds odd for us to say that, doesn't it? it? But it's subtle when you leave the body out of the understanding of giving your heart. Why is it subtle? It's a subtle problem when you leave the body out of that understanding of spirituality. Because if your hearts are his, then so are your minds, and so are your hands, and so are your feet, and so are your eyes, and so are your ears, and so are your tongues. They're all his. True spirituality is carried out in every area of life. Let me put it this way. I love my wife. I love my wife. Now I can tell you I love my wife and say, I meditate all the time on how I love my wife. I think about it, it's great, I sit around and I commune, sometimes I cross my legs and I put my hands like this and I think, what a great wife I have, I love her. I go through little prayer mazes about my wife, I don't do any of this, but you understand, I see Christians doing this kind of thing. But you know, I love my wife. And then I say, oh well, okay, uh, when your wife um, needs to be provided for, do you put your hands to work to provide for her? Because if you love her, you will. When she needs to be protected, do you run to her aid and use your feet to put them to work to run to protect her? Because if you love her, you will. When, when, when I speak of my wife to other people, do I use my tongue in a way that builds her up and honors her, or do I speak poorly about her? Because if I love my wife, I'll build her up and honor her. When I use my eyes out in society and especially around other women. If I love my wife, then I will, with Job, make a covenant with my eyes to never look upon a virgin. I will not look around at other women lustfully, is what Job is saying, if I love my wife. If I love my wife, I will not sit and listen to gossip and slander about my wife. I will not entertain the lips of deceiving and gossiping people about her. You see, if I love my wife, it shows up in everything in my life. Shows up in how I use my body, doesn't it? And that's what Paul's saying. If you love God, if you're offering yourself to him, then that must include every part of your being. If you worship him and love him and are grateful for him, it shows up in the whole person. Paul's already pointed to this in Romans 6, verses 12 through 13. If you look there real briefly, verse 12 through 13, he pointed to this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal bodies. Just chapter 6, verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members, he's talking about your hands, your feet, your eyes, your ears, your tongues. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. She's already addressed this. Why? Because the sad reality is we have used our members for sin. Look back to Romans chapter 3. Keep going back to Romans chapter 3. We have used 
our members for sin. Verse 10 of chapter 3. As it is written, none is righteous. No, no not one. No one understands. In other words, our minds are not, are, they've been defiled sinfully. No one seeks for God. Our feet are not running after him. Our minds, our eyes are not looking to him. Our ears are not listening for him. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. You hear the way Paul's naming the body parts? The way we use them for unrighteousness? In their paths are ruin and mercy. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul says, if you are going to live the Christian life, if you are going to live in a manner that is a logical response to the grace and mercy you've been shown, then you offer your whole person to him. All your members. They're all his. All of them. So let's consider the members of our bodies and how they're to be offered to God. Think about our eyes and our ears. We live in a culture where we take in worldly ideas through our eyes and ears, don't we? On a near constant basis, in fact. In fact, sociologists tell us that, you, know, you guys know this, by the age of 21, the average young person has been bombarded by 300,000 commercial messages. You know that? By the age of 21. Average young person bombarded by over 300,000 commercial messages. And the sociologists say that all of those messages argue from the assumption that personal gratification is the dominant goal in life. And that you don't have what you really need for personal gratification. So buy our product. We have to fight this by taking in the truth of God's word through our ears and our eyes. We do this through reading the word, through hearing the word preached, through, through hearing other people speak the word to us, through singing the word. Men, our eyes, we need to be like Job. We need to make a covenant with our eyes not to look upon a virgin, not to lust. Honoring God with our eyes and ears, though, I just want to make this clear, is not a completely negative project. It isn't just um, avoid these things. It's also do these things. Meditate on the word. Read it. Hear it. Here's another one. Um, just beholding the beauty of creation for God's sake is a way to use your eyes, your ears, to honor him. C.S. Lewis talks about a tool shed, and he said that at one point he was standing in a tool shed, and you know the doors of the tool shed were closed, but there was a little crack at the top of the doors. And he says he was standing to the side, and he said he saw this ray of sunlight come down to the tool shed, and he saw all these little particles in the ray of light. And he said, I was standing there looking at the ray of light and I was enjoying this beam or this ray of sunshine. And I was enjoying it for its own sake. And it reminded me of the way that we live, mind the way we live our lives in God's creation. We enjoy the things God's created for their own sake. He said, but it wasn't until I stepped into that beam of light and let it strike me on the eyes and I looked through that nook in the, that little 
crack in the doors and out of the tool shed and notice where the source of that beam of light comes from, that I understood true beauty. That, that's what we do. We treat all the things around us that God has created like they are ends to themselves. Rather than if we really want to honor God with our eyes and ears, what we do is we see these things, we hear these things, and we recognize they're just a small taste, just a beam of light from the source who is God. And we honor him with our eyes in that way. Our tongues. James says that the tongue is a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. It's a nice comment, isn't it? Our tongues can be used, however, Paul says, to praise God, to speak the word to one another. In Colossians 3, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So you can use your tongue to praise God, and you can do that right here in the worship service. You guys know that? I see so many people who don't sing along, oftentimes, um, sometimes because they don't know the words, they're visitors, they're new songs to them. I understand all that. But sometimes just because they don't sing along because they're just not into that kind of thing. Well, do you sing along in, in your car or the radio or CDs? We're clearly commanded to use our tongue to sing and speak the praises of God. Further, we speak, um, we're to speak words that build up and don't tear down. Do you guys know that? It's what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul goes on to say we're to avoid filthy speech and to focus our speech only on thanksgiving in Ephesians 5. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place but instead let there be thanksgiving. Proverbs 17 and verse 9 says whoever co covers an offense Whoever covers an offense. So you don't have to just gossip about something that's not true. You can gossip about true things. You know that, right? You can use your tongue to talk about true things that happened in a way that's gossiping. Solomon in Proverbs 17, 9 says, Whoever covers an offense seeks love. When they cover the offense, that means they stop talking about it. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. See, we often use our tongues in way, ways that are dishonoring to God, in ways that are sinful. And we're called to use them to honor him. And I don't know about you, but I've sinned in these areas. Have you? Guarantee you have. I don't know how much you struggle in the various areas, but I can guarantee you everyone in this room sins in all these areas in some way. And the question is, how do we continue to walk with him if we have? Because Christ never did sin in those ways. Hear that? That's my hope. My hope isn't that I finally meet the leader or the friend who never sins in any of these ways. My hope is that I already met him in the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is the perfect one. He is the one who used his tongue perfectly. He is the one who set his eyes only on truth and his ears only on truth. And he's my hope. And God credits his life, his righteousness to me. And out of thankfulness, out of gratefulness, my rational response to that is to redouble my efforts not to sin in these areas anymore. To use my tongue to speak truth and love to my brothers. To use my tongue to proclaim the excellencies of him who called me out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's another, other members, our hands and our feet. They're also to be sanctified. They're to be used for the service of others and not for own selfish ends. 1 Thessalonians 4, 11 through 12 tells us that we're to work so that we're not dependent on others with our hands. Listen to what it says. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that we need to work with our hands so we can share with those in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. You guys have to know this. In Christian circles, we have a thing called the doctrine, or Protestant circles, we have a thing called the doctrine of vocation that we hold to. What's the doctrine of vocation? It's the idea that we're called to something. And there's two kinds of vocations or two kinds of callings. There's a sacred or what we call a sacred calling or vocation, which is the idea that I am called into full-time pastoral ministry. I preach the word as my calling and my vocation, and that honors God, and I work hard at it. There's also a thing called secular callings or vocations. I know we think the word secular is like the new S word, but it isn't historically considered bad. It's just not in the realm of the church or redemption. It's in the realm of the created order. We have secular callings or vocations. You might be called to be a hairdresser or a mechanic or a, you know, some sort of businessman. I have no idea what you're called to in your secular calling. But when you work diligently at your calling, God is honored. And you have been sanctified by Christ, declared righteous, so that you use your life to honor him in what he's called you to do. You don't have to just have a job that gives you enough free time to go to church and give money to missions so that you honor God. Doing your job, working diligently at it to provide for yourself so you can share with others in need, honors God all by itself. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all for the glory of God. We can also use our feet to carry us to the needs of others, especially their need for the gospel. What does Paul say in, in Romans 10, 13? Everyone, everyone, hear this? Here's the promise. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not some of the people who call on the name of the Lord. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And he says this, though. But how are they to call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news? See, our feet are supposed to carry us to bring the gospel to people. 
Now I'm supposed to preach on renewing your minds and I'm not gonna be there today. So this sermon will be in part three. Good thing I cut it off last week, huh? I'd been gone until the middle of the afternoon last week. We're gonna, we're gonna finish here. I wanna, I wanna finish with saying this. We'll get into renewing our minds next week, but I wanna finish with saying this. The only way, the only way that we are gonna understand how to live the Christian life is if we understand that the gospel, the gospel or Jesus is not just the door to the Christian house. You guys hear that? He's not just the way we get in and then all of a sudden we have a bunch of house rules we live by and we do all the work on. Jesus is the whole house. You guys hear that? Jesus isn't just the entrance into the Christian life. Jesus is the Christian life. I was a sinner, saved by grace. I was a man who had turned away from my creator. You were people who turned away from your creator, who suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, who fled away from God in your sin, who ran after all kinds of other things in sin, and God called us home. God sought us out. God sent Jesus to live perfectly the life that we failed to, to keep the law in every point, to be tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, and then to pay our penalty on the cross on our behalf, to raise from the dead conquering sin and death, and to ascend his right hand and descend his spirit so that if we believe in him, we're united to him through faith. United to him through faith, and we're counted as sons. We're adopted, we're forgiven of our sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness and we're his children and we live our whole lives not as people who came to the father through Christ but who every time we mess up we run away from him like he suddenly switched from being our loving dad to this angry king who wants to crush us who's closed his fist at us that's not how we live the Christian life that we have to get it all back together in order to come back to our dad that's not how it works The Christian life is one in which we remember Jesus is our hope and we say, you know what? I've sinned. I've messed it up. I have blown it. But Jesus never did. And that's credited to me. Dad, I need you. I trust you. I know my righteousness never changes with you. Why? Because my righteousness is seated at your right hand. And and he, Jesus, is the same yesterday and today and forever. And so I can't improve upon or detract from my righteousness with you. I can't find a better way to get to you than Jesus. He is it. You are for me because of him. And so I can flee to you time and time again because you're my dad, because I'm your son, because you sent Jesus. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. Let me pray. Father, I am thankful to you for your word and for its truth. I'm thankful to you, Father, that you have sent your son, Jesus. That you have called us out and that we are qualified because of Christ to come before you. 
not because of anything in ourselves, that he is, in fact, our righteousness, our hope. And because he has been, you have been so gracious and merciful to us, Father, let us respond to that reasonably. Let us respond to that with a joyful offering of our entire self, our entire person to you so that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.